Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. Uh, this is a recording for May the 17th. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts. And last time we were together, <clears throat> we got down through verses 41 and 42. Uh, Acts chapter number, uh, I believe it was Acts chapter number 51, uh, 41 and 42. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we do come before you this morning and ask that you would bless this study, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see things, you'd open our ears to hear things, and Lord, our hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. This is where we left off last week. Instead of being bitter about the whole thing, they counted it an honor to suffer shame for his name. And then notice that they continued daily in the temple. And you'll remember they had been told not to preach in that name, that name of Jesus. But they continued to do so. And you remember Gamaliel pulled the council together and said, Listen, guys, if this is of God, we don't want to be against it. And if it's not of God... It's going to fall apart just like every other little uprising that's ever happened in our history. And then they promptly beat them <laughs> and let them go. And they, instead of being bitter about it, they counted it an honor to suffer in his name. And immediately they continued daily in the temple. The temple was still fully operational. It was still the center of Jewish life. And they... The apostles, not the B-apostles, the A-apostles. There are no B-apostles, by the way. They were still a part of the temple. They were still participating in the activities of the temple. And when I tell people that, they look at me like, like I'm, I'm crazy. Like, like for some reason they think at Pentecost, they all went down to the First Baptist Church or the First Pentecostal Church. No, they didn't. They still were going to the temple. Why? Because nothing had changed. Nothing had changed in regards to the temple at all. Now, when we get to Paul, we find that other than a vow that he took to reach the Jewish nation, he had nothing to do with the temple. But the apostles very much had some, the, the apostles, the 12, very much had, had, had things to do with the temple. Paul didn't tell his new converts that they had to go to Jerusalem. He never told them they had to go to the temple. Instead, fellowships were started in homes. They never went back to Jerusalem. The home churches began as a result. In reality, the whole concept of a building as a meeting place is foreign to the early church. They always met at the temple under Judaism, and then the churches that Paul planted they never went back to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. And they didn't have buildings on corners where to worship. They worshiped in homes. They worshiped in homes. So the, the, the entire concept of a building came out of the Protestant Reformation. It's a leftover from the Roman Catholic Church and the big buildings that they built. And that followed through in the Roman into the Protestant Reformations. So again, throwbacks to the Roman churches. And again, I think I mentioned this last time, the Rome understand the church believes that, you know, they have replaced Israel. 
the Roman Catholic Church, but unfortunately most Protestant churches today feel that they have replaced Israel. They viewed themselves as the new Israel. And people today, many Protestants, I would say almost all Protestants view themselves as a new, as the new Israel. All of the promises that were given to Israel are now for the are for them, for the church. That's called replacement theology. That falls right in with covenant theology, which I categorically reject. And now we get into verse chapter number six. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Here we start to see problems with what I'm calling the common store. I'm a history teacher, so I go back to Jamestown and the common store. And the common store was a place where all of the folks brought their the, the fruit of their, their land. They brought everything and they put it in this common store. And then each everybody went back and pulled out what they needed as they had need. Now, that didn't work. It didn't last very long. So they had already started to have problems with this whole idea. Now, you remember they had sold everything, and they had laid it at the apostles' feet. We talked about Barnabas. We talked about, and uh, uh, what's his name? Sapphira. Was it Sapphira? Uh, chapter 5. I'm getting old. Ananias and Sapphira. Um, you know, they, they had sold everything, they gave it, and now it was being distributed, and the apostles were over the distribution. So, I don't know exactly what the problems were. No doubt, just like in Jamestown and in our society today, there were those who wanted to take out who maybe had not put in. Uh, maybe it was just beginning to dry up. Now, bear in mind, you know, some people will look back and many theologians will say that the whole idea of selling everything and this experiment with communism was not of God, it was flesh. No, it wasn't. I categorically reject that. They honestly believed that they were going into the tribulation seven years, Daniel's 70th week, and it would culminate in the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. They didn't think they needed these things. They thought they could survive by sharing with each other until the Lord came back. And, obviously, it might have been beginning to dry up. Or it just may have been too much trouble for the apostles to tend to themselves, which seems to be the more obvious answer. It just became too much for them. Now, of course, we do know that it did eventually fail. Uh, because when we get over into 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, and bear in mind this collection for the saints is referring to the saints in Jerusalem, and I'm still going down that road um, in regards to saints. Some would say the saints only refers to the Jewish believers and has nothing to do with the body of Christ. Um, I haven't arrived at that idea yet, but I do see where they're getting it from. So that's something you and I both can study. As, as I've given order to the churches in Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in stores. God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. And when I come, whomsoever ye will, approved by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. 
Why was they taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem? Because it was drying up. (laughs) Because the whole common store was beginning to have problems. It didn't happen the way they thought it was going to happen. So now the Gentile churches, the body of Christ churches, were having to make gifts to take collections to the Jewish church, the kingdom church in Jerusalem. Also in Romans chapter number 15, but now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. Again, see that word saints. Uh, why is he calling them the saints? Um, something to think about. For it hath pleased them in Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution to the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So here we see the number of disciples had multiplied and there was a murmuring among the Grecians and the Hebrews. So the question is, who were the Grecians? I think the Hebrews is pretty obvious. Uh, but the Grecians, a Grecian was simply a non, what modern commentaries will call a non-Palestinian Jew. They're also referred to as Hellenists. And I think some translations use that word Hellenist. Uh, Remember that there were Jews who had been carried away into Babylon and never returned to Jerusalem. They grew up outside of Jerusalem and maintained their Jewish faith. These were those who referred to as Grecians. They had returned to, to Jerusalem and had accepted Christ as the Messiah and now were a part of this kingdom church in Jerusalem. Albert Barnes says of these, These were not proselytized Gentiles. And I've heard people say that. No, but those of Jewish origin who were not natives of Judea, who had come up to Jerusalem to attend the great festivals. So these were Grecians. They were looked down on. There is no doubt. I mean, their their widows were being neglected in the daily ministration or the daily distribution of food. So there was obviously some kind of prejudice going on against them. Now look in, uh, in verse number two. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now many today in the church will go straight to these verses and say that these were the first deacons in the church. I remember before I even came around to this way of thinking. My previous church would always go back to Acts chapter number 6 to justify deacons. And it never really set well with me. It just seemed like they were pulling that out of context. It didn't have anything to do with what they were doing, but they were doing it. they They were using it to justify what they were doing. But the, if you look, the Bible never calls these men deacons. While they were certainly forerunners, they were not deacons in the sense of the deacons that Paul talked to Timothy about for the body of Christ. They simply were not. And to use this text as a way to call deacons, as a way to vote for deacons, is, is, is taking it out of context. It's not talking about deacons in that sense. And then notice in verse number three, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now again, a lot of churches will take this and they will use it to justify congregationally elected deacons. Most Baptist churches do this. 
they go to the congregation and they accept nominations for deacons. Okay? But this verse simply cannot be used to justify that practice. Now, I've served in, and ministered in enough Baptist churches to, to know that this practice does not work that well at all. They're little more than popularity contests in my experience, and too often they are men that are used to keep the preacher in check. I'm not a fan of congregational polity, but this is one of the foundations, foundational verses or section of scriptures that they go to, to to justify it. Again, these are not the deacons that Paul is talking about later on in Timothy. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among yourselves seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were even obedient to the faith. Again, many people look at these verses and say, this is how we call deacons in the church today. Not so. These guys are not deacons. Obviously, the apostles were having a hard time keeping up with the distribution the Grecians were fighting against the Hebrews. There was jealousy. There was some prejudice going on there. And they're, they're like, yeah, they're like, you know, you guys just need to pick somebody to help take care of this. And, of course, the people pushed the people, the, the men forward, the apostles. They prayed over them. They laid hands on them. And the word of God was increased. Why? Because the apostles didn't have to spend all of their time trying to redistribute um, the goods out of the common store there in Jerusalem. And then notice in verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now make no mistake, Stephen is still a continuation of the apostolic ministry, ministering exclusively to the house of Israel. And then notice in verse 9, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, in other words, they bribed men to come and say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So what were they so upset about? The message that Stephen preached was about a king and a coming kingdom. He was preaching the same message that the apostles were preaching. He was teaching the, the gospel of the kingdom, which is repent, be baptized, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand. But understand something. What he preached jeopardized their livelihood. 
if what Stephen was preaching truly was going to come to pass, there would be no need for them anymore. No need for them. If the king and the kingdom was coming, they thought they were going to be out of a job. Then notice in verse 15, And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as that had been an angel. Now, to me, this simply means that they saw something in Stephen that was beyond the ordinary. It doesn't mean that he glowed in the dark. It doesn't mean that his face was all shiny like Moses was when he came down off the mount. He was just filled with the Holy Spirit, and they saw something in him that was just beyond the ordinary. It was like looking upon the face of an angel. And of course, Stephen, the word angel does mean messenger. Now, notice in chapter 7, let's see, 6, that's a short chapter, isn't it? Uh, Chapter number 7, then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in, that's Sharon or Haran, and I will bless them that bless thee. And curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. These verses are interesting in that they go beyond uh, the Genesis 12 account. Because notice it says, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. Now, if you look in the Genesis 12 account, it says the God, it just says that the Lord said unto Abraham. Um, And I'll show you this. Maybe I'm making much out of nothing, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Then Excuse me, then the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country. But yet Stephen is sharing a little bit of illumination here and is saying the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So that means that God actually appeared in, most likely, human form, thus a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We call it a Christophany or a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And Stephen, as we'll see, he's going to review Israel's history beginning with Abraham and how God in the past had consistently prepared the nation for exactly what was getting ready to happen, their coming king and kingdom. And then in verse 4, Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from thence when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell, Canaan. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. So this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant when God made the promise that I would give you this land. And the point is that God had made a promise to Abraham that had not yet been fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. As a matter of fact, it never was fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime completely. And then verse 6, And God spake on this wise, that his seeds should sojourn in a strange land. Now he's referring to Egypt, that they should bring them into bondage. That was the Egyptian bondage, and entreat them evil for 400 years. And the, nation to, and the nations to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that, they will come forth and serve me in this place. 
Obviously, this is speaking of the bondage that Egypt had endured, uh, that Israel had endured in Egypt, and of course, God judged the Egyptians when He delivered them out of the hands of the Egypt, out of out of their hands under Moses, with the plagues and the ultimate killing of the firstborn. And then in verse nine, and He gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac. And circumcised, and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him, and delivered him out of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So this speaks of the betrayal of Joseph's brothers in selling him into slavery, where he, through a series of events, ends up being the governor over all of Egypt. And we know that that began with Pharaoh's dream and Joseph came and interpreted the dream. I believe this is a type and a foreshadowing of how Israel had also sold its Redeemer not knowing who he was. You see that the brothers sold Joseph into Egypt not knowing that he would be the one that would save them ultimately. So too Israel was, had done the exact same thing. S- Stephen is not just giving a history lesson here. He's showing the nation of Israel, you've done the same thing again with Jesus. Now notice verse 11. Now there came a dearth over the land of Egypt, still referring to the story of Joseph and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance, But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, referring to to his sons. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. So this is when Jacob sent the remaining brothers to get grain in Egypt because the drought that the land was going through was so severe. In Genesis 42, in verse 1, now, when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy corn in Egypt. Now, notice it says ten brothers. That's because one of the brothers, Benjamin, uh, Joseph, Jacob wouldn't let him go. And then in verse uh, chapter 42, verse 8, And Joseph knew his brethren, that they knew not him, but they knew not him. Now, doesn't that remind you of a verse in John 1, 11, He came into his own, and his own received him not? They didn't realize that they were standing before the man that would save their lives. So, too, the nation of Israel did not realize who Jesus was, and that's very important. They did it in ignorance. That's very, very important, as we'll see as we our study today. Later, we find that Joseph could not restrain himself any further, and re- he revealed himself to his himself to his brothers. In uh, Genesis four one, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by, and he cried and caused every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And he said, I am Joseph. 
Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near, I pray, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold into Egypt. Now see, Stephen's going somewhere here. And then in 45.15, Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them after that his brethren had talked to him. In the same way, Israel did not recognize Jesus as their Redeemer. But one day, according to Zechariah, they will. In Zechariah 12, verse, verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the valley of Megiddon. And the land shall mourn every family apart, and the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. That's going to happen one day. Israel is going to realize that they did not recognize their Redeemer. In Zechariah 13, 6, And one day when one shall say unto him, What are the wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Stephen is making an attempt to show the nation that what their forefathers had done to Joseph, they had done to Jesus. But, and this is important, but as we've already mentioned, they did it in ignorance. They did it in ignorance. In Acts, um, in Acts 3 and verse number 17, let me highlight that real quick. And now, brethren, I want that through ignorance you did as did also your rulers. You did it in ignorance. We discussed how had they known who he was and done what they did in total knowledge, God would have brought judgment on them immediately. He would have destroyed them. But even Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. This is a very important distinction. Interestingly enough, Stephen will later declare the very same words, or not the same words, but the same meaning of the words, in Acts chapter, down at the end of Acts chapter number 7. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He asked God to forgive them for their ignorance. Why is that so important? Why am I making such a big deal out of that? Because again, had the nation of Israel known full well what they were doing, God would have had to have destroyed them according to the law of murder. The law makes it clear in the Old Testament that if someone knowingly, premeditatively killed someone, it was life for life. However, if it was an accident, grace was extended for the person and they were allowed to flee to the city of refuge. 
where they would be protected. I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8, with that in mind, it kind of illuminates this verse, these verses. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They did it in ignorance. Therefore, grace was extended. Now look in um, the, the example of grace is furthermore displayed in the next verses. Notice what he says. Verse 14, Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. Remember how I said you need to take care of that in the King James? One score is twenty, three score, twenty, forty, sixty, and fifteen. Uh, that's seventy-five. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sychem, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. Joseph showed his brothers mercy. Just as God was about to show mercy to Israel, as we will see in a little bit, because when they stoned Stephen, they laid the clothes down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul. Saul was the instrument of grace because they did it in ignorance. Something to think about. God bless you guys. I hope that you have a great day and remember that God loves you, wants the best for you. He's working all things out for your good.